printer Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is the Reading Women Podcast, where we're reclaiming half the bookshelf by talking about books by or about women. And today we have Margaret Wilkerson Sexton with us, and she'll be talking about her debut novel, A Kind of Freedom, which is out now from Counterpoint Press. Welcome. We're so excited to have you on the podcast today, Margaret. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And before we get into like the questions about your book, we wanted to say, first of all, congratulations on your nomination for the National Book Award. Is it still kind of a weird feeling? Thank you. Um, well, it, it certainly was. I definitely wasn't expecting it. It was a huge shock. And I don't want to say it's normalized because that's not true. But you know how, you know, just the more you sit with information, it starts to feel more, um, it starts to feel like, um, I guess, older as opposed to novel. And so right. um, it doesn't surprise me as much as it used to. Like in the first few weeks afterward, I would wake up and be like, wait, <laughs> what happened? But now, you know, it feels like something that I, I've already absorbed as opposed to something I'm still um, grasping. But on the other hand, I mean, it's, it's extremely hard to believe because a year ago this time, I never would have even imagined it would be possible. It's so cool. I had just finished your book, like, I think two days before the nominations came out. And oh, I was, really? Uh-huh. Yeah, and I was so excited. I was like, oh, my goodness. I'm so glad this book is on that list. So, well-deserved. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, we were really excited to read the book because, as Autumn might have mentioned earlier, she is really into Southern fiction. And so okay. it was, like, perfect in our wheelhouse. So. Yeah, we're definitely excited to talk to you and get into the book. Oh, that's great. Well, before we get too far off topic, um, I guess to, or too far into your book, if you, to just to start us out, um, for our listeners who haven't read your book yet, could you tell us a little bit about it and kind of where the original idea came from? Yeah, sure. It's, the book takes place in New Orleans and it's set in three different generations. One generation is, um, in the 1940s at the height of World War II, and one is in the 80s in the Reagan administration, and the last one is uh, post-Katrina 2010, and all in New Orleans. And the book weaves in and out of those three generations, so it's not like blocked narrative where you'd have one and then the next one and then the third and that's it. You you see each perspective routinely, so they each come in about three times and they, they weave in and out of each other. The book is supposed to be a symbol for the degree to which the restrictions targeting black people currently are not as removed as we think they are from the Jim Crow South. And so I I have the narrative kind of taking place in parallel as if they're all in one time period so that I can show that uh, there are more similarities between the the racial patterns happening now and the racial patterns happening in the 40s than one would expect. Yeah, that's something actually that um, Autumn and I really enjoyed about your novel was that, I mean, I am all here for a family saga. It is my absolute, honestly, my favorite novel to read. <laughs> your novel, though, we usually think, I guess, that a family saga is going to be linear, but yours, as you've mentioned, uh, all the stories are happening parallel. So how did you decide that you wanted to take a different uh, look at the family novel and do it parallel instead of linear? Yeah, just because... Um just because I wanted to illustrate the degree to which society hasn't moved forward as much as one would think. So in some ways we have, we've had a black president and there are all these other notable markers of progress, but in many ways, you know, in terms of housing segregation and school segregation and mass incarceration and the way the war on drugs was handled and is being handled, we actually have regressed. 
or have not moved forward one bit. I thought it would be an interesting way to show that by paralleling the narrative. Somebody said once that they read it and it seemed like it was all happening at the same time, like they all kind of meld into each other. I thought an interesting way to do that would be to just have the, the narratives happening together. And another way I was thinking about doing it was starting with the most recent narrative as a block narrative, so like 100 pages of TC, and then going in the opposite direction chronologically. So then going into Jackie in the 80s and having her do a block narrative of 100 pages and then having Evelyn finally, who's of course the oldest woman and whose time period is furthest from us, having her be the final one. I thought that might be interesting too. Just another way to play on the expectation that things get better when they, when they don't always. Yeah, and I thought it was so interesting how you did it and like how you revealed different pieces of information and the different, you know, narratives. And then at the end, it ends with Evelyn's wedding without being too spoilery. And it was sort of like, it reminded me of, you know, like the marriage plot or the Shakespearean, you know, marriage at the end of the play kind of thing. But I really liked your take on it, how we know that it's not happily ever after per se, because we know kind of the end of the story as well. Right, exactly. Before I even knew like what all the sections would be, I knew that I would end with the wedding and I didn't know if I would do it in blocks or if I would even and out but I knew I would end with the wedding because I, I just thought that the gravity of the degree to which the hopelessness that this family is enduring and the hopelessness that pervades the African-American community in some respect I thought the gravity of that hopelessness could really be revealed if you end with something so exciting and so promising but there's really no promise there because you already know that it's going to fail, you know? And I, and I just think that is symbolic of maybe how African-American ancestors would feel looking forward and seeing where we are today. And there have been so many improvements and I don't want to undermine them, but in some respects there would have been so much promise, you know, decades or centuries ago. And in some ways that promise has really not yielded much at all. Yeah, I th and I think ending with the wedding for me, when I got to that last chapter, I was like, I mean, it just like hit the point home. I was like, whoa, this is so like it was unexpected in a good way where I was like, this is like okay. the perfect way to like end this narrative. So I really yeah, I really liked how how you wrapped it up that way. Um, one of the I'm things I'm so glad to hear that Kendra and I were talking and we were talking about the book after we read it, just kind of how kind of the way you're talking about the plot or the plotting, the family doesn't like, instead of a novel that we would typically read about like white families in America, that your family kind of falls in class status with each generation is sort of rising. Um, and it just made me wonder, like, what does it say about the American dream and how race is often left out of this conversation about what it means to be an American? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because as you said, most, demographics can expect that their children will do better than the Democrat, than the generation before them. And, and that tends to be what happens. But statistically, because African-Americans are in such a precarious position already due to historical racism, and also because of the systematic blocks to progression that are rampant in society right now, namely housing and school segregation and mass incarceration, as I said, but because of those blocks, that's really not the case. There's a very high likelihood statistically that black families will slide out of the middle class once they're in it, that the generation below the generation that achieves the middle class will, will fall back into um, poverty. I mean, it's sad. It's interesting. 
it's all of those things, but it's, you know, it's just the truth that the American dream and the freedom that it promises is not guaranteed for every demographic in the country. Mm-hmm. And it's actually one of the reasons that I thought the title was perfect and so apt for this book, because we haven't really, the African-American community hasn't really achieved a whole freedom. You know, it's, it's like a sort of freedom or a kind of freedom. And in that sense, the American dream is, you know, it's still elusive. Yeah, and I just thought you pointed that out so beautifully, and it's something that I hadn't really thought about a lot in that sense, because um, while I love the family saga type novel and the different generations, unfortunately, there aren't too many out there about African American families, and so I really loved reading yours and reading, you know, your take on it and how that's, that's different and that we need to pay attention to that, and that's something that's there, and I thought you did an excellent job uh, communicating that to your readers. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so in your novel, I found it very interesting how we have a great look at New Orleans um, uh, through the years, and especially before and after Katrina. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about that is, um, in T.C.'s life in particular, um, it's drastically changed since the hurricane destroyed his neighborhood, and it's never really recovered. And he talks about how he had like this life plan, and it kind of was ruined after Katrina came through and just the na- entire neighborhood was destroyed. But even though it's been um, over 10 years, you know, why do you think that we don't hear more about the long-term effects of Hurricane Katrina? Um, most of the time we just hear about the narrative of that time, but we haven't heard how people are doing now. I don't know. I think that's a great question. I really don't know why nobody's talking or writing about the long-term effects of Hurricane Katrina. I Because I, I'm even starting to see that there are books coming out about Katrina but but they're focused on the storm itself. And I I wonder if that's because that's the most horrific part of it in people's eyes, the immediacy of it, the storm, you know, the degree to which it's a storm. I mean, that's just such a, it's such a destructive force. And I wonder if that just takes over in people's mind. I think that might be part of it. So when people want to read about it, they, you know, people will ask, well, where's the story here? And the story might seem to be there because that's the most physically, tangibly destructive area or place where the storm hit, you know, in its, in its actual concreteness. But I, I mean, if that, to the extent that that's the issue, I think, I mean, I think it's more subtle here. Like I, if you notice in this narrative, I never really talk about I mean, I rarely talk about the physical destruction of Katrina. I I may do a few details about it, but it's mostly about how it psychologically ruined this person and how, because he didn't have, it's not like he was, you know, going to be a doctor before the storm. His prospects weren't so amazing before the storm, but his chances were better because he was more psychologically stable. And I think the subtleness of that I thought was interesting because that's what I've seen in my life. I've seen that yeah, a lot of my relatives were displaced and, and that was harmful, but a lot of them also are struggling with just the, especially the ones who are hitting adolescents, are struggling with just the just the emotional effect that that would have as a child to be to be bottomed out, to lose everything and to not know, you know, to, to, to go weeks or months not knowing how friends or relatives are doing. I just think about the emotional and psychological impact that would have had, and that was something that I wanted to focus on. But, you know, there's another element of this. There's another reason why people don't talk about the long-term effects, and I think to a certain extent the city, you know, the city wanted to move on from Katrina, and they have cleaned up most of the areas, especially the areas I think that were important to to tourism and that were important to more powerful um, inhabitants of the city. They've cleaned those areas up, and I think they kind of want to move on from this, but there were areas that were hit 
where many poor people live, especially many black people live, and it's been harder to clean up those areas in concrete ways. A lot of it is just still destroyed, and it's been harder to clean up that narrative, too. You know, it's been harder to kind of just put a Band-Aid on that narrative because people didn't have places to go in in, um, many situations, and they, you know, it was just harder to clean up those lives that were affected. I actually went to New Orleans last year for the first time and we drove in and I was really surprised, like you said, like how outside of the tourist areas, there's still a lot of homes and families who are displaced. And it's sad to me that like once something like kind of like you were saying, like the sensationalism, like once it gets out of the news cycle, how we people just kind of forget about it. And there's actually Mm -hmm. like lives Mm -hmm. affected in all of this. It is. It is. And that's what I was going to say, too. Um, You hit on that. Like, I think a part of it is just our human tendency to to move on and the next storm comes and that's more interesting. And and we're doing it now, even in the midst of this terrible hurricane season. But it seems like after one, there's another and people's attention just doesn't hold long enough to really observe the long-term effects of any of them. So I, I think, like like you said, you know, a lot of it is just that standard human nature. And then I think, of course, there are other aspects here more specific to the city and the demographic that was touched. I really enjoyed your perspective, and that's kind of why we're trying to get more people to read it, because it's really a valuable kind of perspective. Um, and as I'm kind of, Kendra kind of mentioned earlier, I've read a lot of Southern literature in the last couple of years, and Stories like yours, like this one in particular, about African-American families and the things that they deal with are not common, um, and they're definitely not common. And it's it's so unfortunate. Like, there's, like, not even, like, main characters. I was thinking, like, to you, like, why, especially now, do you think it's important that these multi-generational novels about African-American families are actually told and that people are reading these stories? I mean, I don't think it's just the multi-generational story that I think is important. I think it's just that there needs to be a diversity of African-American stories out there. And so people can and should write about whatever they want to, but if just a more diverse overview of stories came out of the African-American community, then you would see more multi-generational stories. But you would also see more one-generational stories. You would see just a vast variety of stories that I think um, are being lost now because for various reasons, I think it's a luxury to be able to write full time and to be able to, or even part time and to be able to produce this stuff. And I also think there's a, a block in the publishing industry because I think publishers think they know what readers want to read. And sometimes if certain stories or narratives don't fit into the expectation of what black readers or other readers might want to read, then it's harder to get it seen um, and published. I think there are a few ways that, you know, that voices that could really contribute to the publishing world and to the literary world are being blocked and muted. Yeah. And researching for this podcast, I think you definitely can see that. And, you know, I love blogs and newsletters like Well Read Black Girl um, and We Need Diverse Books because mm-hmm. Autumn and I are very passionate about promoting diverse forces and, and trying to get that out there. And mm-hmm. um, we were incredibly happy about the National Book Award long list because there were such a diversity on the long list. Oh, I know. Yeah. Yes, that's right. It was really amazing. 
And it is, yeah. Yeah, and I feel like, especially last year at the National Book Award, um, there were so many diverse, most of them were diverse authors at that one. And so it's been, even though it might seem like a small step, I think it does seem like some progress is being made. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I definitely agree there's not enough diverse fiction out there. And so that's one of the reasons why um, we wanted to talk to you because we loved your book and it really made an impression upon us. And so, yeah, I'm trying not to gush here. I'm, I feel like I'm failing miserably, but... Oh, no. No, that's so nice to hear. Thank you. I appreciate that. One of the pieces I really love that was written about your book was the Publishers Weekly article that came out about how your book came to be published. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. And so you talked about how like, your first manuscript was set in the Dominican Republic and it had a different storyline, uh, but then you started working on this manuscript that became a kind of freedom. Um, can you talk a little bit about how your book came to be and just uh, are the two ideas related and just your process with that? Yeah. Okay. So the first book, the funny thing is that the title was A Kind of Freedom for the first <laughs> manuscript that took place in the Dominican Republic. Um, oh, wow. But it had no relationship with this book whatsoever other than that. And I'll get into how the name is the same. You know, I started the first book in 2005 in the Dominican Republic. I just graduated from college, and I didn't know um, what I was going to do with my life. I wanted to be a writer, and um, I had this grant to go out of the country for a year because I was working at a civil rights organization and also writing about um, what I was experiencing there. So the book, I was actually, when I was working at the civil rights organization, I was working with um, a group that tried to help provide citizenship rights for Dominicans of Haitian descent who were being systematically denied these rights, um, not only citizenship rights, but the rights that are associated with it, so um, the right to attend school and all that. And so the, the group I was working with called MUDA was focused on these issues, and so I was pretty immersed in that demographic and in that category of issues. So it was pretty clear to me when I got there that that's what I would write about, that I would write about Dominicans and patients who are discriminated against largely because of their color. I, I thought it would be interesting to parallel that with the experience of a fictional character in New Orleans who was also discriminated against due to color, of course, on vastly different levels. I mean, in the Dominican Republic, they're being denied serious basic rights, and it's, it's based on colorism, of course, but but it's also based on nationality and all that. So it's completely different scale, but I thought the parallel there was interesting. So the book was about an African-American girl from New Orleans who went to the Dominican Republic to help this struggling community, but she was so triggered by um, the colorism she experienced in the Dominican Republic, which reminded her of the colorism she experienced as a child in New Orleans, that she was hindered from contributing to this community, and she actually ended up harming it before she left to go back home. So that was the book. And I worked on it for about four years and I couldn't sell it. I, I had an agent and she couldn't sell it. And I did about probably 15 revisions. I mean, major revisions. I did way more revisions on it than that, but in terms but you know, major revisions, like re rewriting the whole book, I did it about 15 times. Wow. And, um, <laughs> yeah. So it took, I mean, it was about four years. The first two years I was working full time and then I had twins. And so it was reduced to part time, but I, I was always working on this book. 
and then, you know, it was very disappointing. It was just a huge disappointment. I never stopped carrying that feeling of disappointment around for that four-year period because I was just being hit constantly with rejection. I think I know over 100 rejections, and I don't know exactly because I stopped counting, but I know I got to 100. And I remember that number because people kept saying, if you want to get an agent, you have to submit 100 times, and then the odds are you get an agent after the 100th time. I, my agent couldn't sell it. So I ended up parting ways with the agent and then I was still working on the book and and trying to get an agent again from a revised copy, but from a revised version, but I really didn't have any serious hopes to be honest with you. And then I met this woman, an editor who was doing this year long narrative program where she worked, she would work with writers for a year on a manuscript and they would send her 20 pages a month. And then by the end of the year long period, there would be a book. And that was the idea of it. I really, you know, I didn't want to do that because I thought it would distract me from the book I was working on and I had been working on for the past four years. But I, like I said, I didn't really have anything lined up. And, you know, I thought, well, well, you know, why not? I don't have anything to lose. So in order to participate in that program, I had to start a new book. You couldn't go in with a book you'd already written. So, oh, wow. um, yeah, so that's when I started this book that we're talking about now. It took me a while before I even cared about this book. Like I was, you know, again, still like obsessed with the other kind of freedom, the, the book about the Dominican Republic. I would say maybe 50 pages into this, I thought, oh, this might be something. I'd always had the idea to do it, you know, but I, I just wasn't, I didn't have the emotional investment until about 50 pages in. And then I was like, oh, this may be something. And my editor who was working on it with me really liked it. And she started really hyping me up about it. And she was like, this is great. I'm going to show my husband when we're done. Her husband um, is my publisher, actually. He's um, the head of CounterPoint. And so oh, wow. when she started getting, yeah. So when she started getting excited, you know, it was contagious. And I, I fell in love with the book, but it took, you know, it took a little while because I was still really into the other one. You know, of course, they don't have anything to do with each other in terms of, themes, except for the fact that they both center around social justice in some way. But other than that, you know, they're, they're very different. And in retrospect, I'm glad that that book never came out because I don't think, I think all the effort that went into that book kind of yielded the fruit of this one, which came about very effortlessly. And even effortlessly in terms of time span, it only took about eight months to write this book. Whereas the other one, you know, I had worked on for four years, as I keep saying. You know, I'm just, I'm grateful that it worked out the way it did in retrospect. Yeah, it sounds like everything fell in line for this book. And after, I mean, struggle with the the first A Kind of Freedom, it must have been just like, hey, this is not fair. Like the other book I've tried (laughs) forever. And this one, it just kind of fell, you know. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't fair, but I didn't care because, you know, I had written this one too. (laughs) So, (laughs) So that was fine too. But no, it, it didn't seem fair. It sure didn't. But I think I had to learn how to do it. You know, I didn't really know what I was doing. And I'm not yeah. saying I'm an expert now, but I really didn't know what I was doing before. And I think the four years was really just learning how to write a book. Yeah, and I, I really loved how, you know, it's only about a little over 200 pages. And when you think of, like, family generational novels, like you think of something that's like 500, 600 pages, but you really, you don't, you don't lose anything with, you know, quote unquote lost pages. Like it's just so compact and just so like tight. And I really appreciated just how you did that. That mean the skill and that I can't even imagine. So yeah, it definitely, those four years were definitely well invested. They weren't wasted. Oh, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you.
we could keep talking about your book and we would like to, but we don't want to spoil it either for our readers. So before we let you go, um, we obviously are all about female voices and promoting women. So who are some of the women writers who have inspired you in your reading and writing life? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say Tayari Jones, um, who's a mentor and who's a, an, a, an amazing author of four books. And um, Edwidge Danticad and um, Jamaica Kincaid, I started reading them when I was in high school and um, just fell in love with the lyricism of their writing. And just, I love post-colonial literature. And so I, I love the themes. I just also love how they describe relationships between women. Of course, the queen, Toni Morrison, um, has had a huge influence on me um, in terms of the way she always incorporates social justice or social commentary into her work, um, but in a subtle way so that you don't lose the story. Oh, Elizabeth Strout, actually, I think is, I, I've been reading her recently, and um, I just really would love to, I think she has such a way with dialogue and such a way with conveying the emotional interior of her characters, their interior lives. Um, I'm really striving to, to do better with that, and I've been reading her a lot for instruction on that. Attica Locke is an amazing oh, author. Yes. Um, yeah. I haven't read her most recent one, but I've read the other three. She's just, she's amazing. And she helps me a lot with plot, just moving a story forward. But she's another one who also always weaves in social commentary, mm-hmm. which I think is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're talking about um, her book, the cutting season um, this month on the podcast. We're talking about yeah. mysterious women. And so I'm reading bluebird bluebird yeah. right now. And it's just blowing me away. Like, I don't know why I haven't read her before this month. Oh, I like, bet. Oh. I know. I hadn't heard of her until like a few years ago. And I was like, where have I been? She's amazing. I love the cutting season. I thought I think that was my first yeah. one that I read. And then I went back so to the good. other. And yeah, and I bought Bluebird, Bluebird. And I haven't read it yet, but I'm really excited to read it. Yeah, it's it's like, a, you know, an African-American Walker, Texas ranger. Oh, he goes in, you know. Oh, really? Yeah, it's basically what it is. And it's really amazing. Wow. Um, and there's like yeah. a, an Aryan Brotherhood conspiracy in this tiny town. And Oh, interesting. Wow. It's it's really good, too. So Yeah, she's super talented. Oh, and Jasmine Ward. Oh, my gosh. Jasmine Ward. Oh, yeah. Another one. I just, um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention her. I I read Salvage the Bones a long time ago, and I think maybe I was too close to Hurricane Katrina to really appreciate it. I think I, I couldn't really get into it because I was probably still processing. Mm-hmm. And then um, I read it, like, within the year. And, I, and I've also just read Sing Unburied Sing, and they're both just out of this world. Yes. we. I just finished Sing Unburied Sing, and, yeah, she's good. <laughs> yeah, so those are amazing writers, and and. But one of the questions that we want to ask you, um, some writers don't like to talk about their current projects while they're working on them, but um, is there anything that you're working on now that you'd like to talk about? I am. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's a problem for me to talk about it, but I wouldn't know yet because it's only my, you know, it's only my first book, but I always talk about it. I, I spent a lot of time working on it this morning. It's about three friends who go to a boarding school together. And um, one of the friends, is kicked out of the school because of the fault of another one of the friends. And, uh, and then their lives kind of intersect or their lives do intersect in following generations. Um, even, even to the point where their children's lives intersect and it just follows their course 
in life. And it's going to be commentary on the education system, particularly the education system as it affects black boys, and also a commentary on um, assimilation and what you take behind, what you take with you, what you leave behind, what you can't leave behind, that kind of thing. Well, no rush, but whenever you get it done, <laughs> I will be dying to read that because that sounds so oh, good. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's our show. Um, we'd like to thank you so much. Say thank you to Margaret Wilkerson Sexton for joining us today and for talking about her book, A Kind of Freedom. You can get it right now from Counterpoint Press, and I highly, highly, highly recommend that you do it like right now. You can find out more about her work on MargaretWilkersonSexton.com, and she's also on Twitter at MWilkers13 and on Facebook at Margaret Wilkerson Sexton Author. And we will have all this linked in our show notes so you can easily get to it so you can follow what's going on with her and as for us you can find me autumn privet on twitter at autumn privet and other places too and you can find kendra at kd winchester and don't forget to rate and review this podcast it helps more people find great author interviews like this and just helps spread the love for the reading women so thank you all so much for listening and we will talk to you next time bye